Hey there, it's Kathy. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to History of the 90s early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. On the night of July 10th, 1908, a group of teenagers made their way to Teal's Pond in upstate New York. They pitched tents and went about setting up a campsite in the heavily wooded area about 20 minutes from the small town of Troy. The plan was to fish and squirrel hunt the next day, followed by a night of eating and drinking. But in the morning light, those plans were derailed when one of the teens made a horrible discovery. The body of a 14-year-old girl was found floating face down in the pond. The investigation into the death of Hazel Drew uncovered secret lovers, exposed a web of corruption and ugly misdeeds by several wealthy and prominent locals in the town of Troy. You may be asking yourself, why am I telling you about a mysterious murder in 1908, when this show focuses on things that happened in the 1990s? Well, that murder inspired one of the most unusual and groundbreaking television shows of the 90s, a show that didn't just push boundaries, it shattered them completely. I'm Kathy Kinzora, and this is History of the 90s, a podcast about a decade that changed the world. On this episode, we dive into the bizarre and twisted town of Twin Peaks. Maybe you've heard the term prestige TV. It usually refers to a type of show like The Sopranos, ones that feel more like a movie told in chapters. Think Breaking Bad and The Wire. But none of those shows would exist if it weren't for Twin Peaks, which first aired nearly a decade before The Sopranos. It took everything we knew about TV, mixed it all together, and baked up a delicious piece of hot entertainment pie that even Agent Cooper would love. If you don't get that reference, don't worry, I'll explain it. But first, let's take a look at what TV was like before Twin Peaks. If you sat down to watch television at the end of the 1980s, chances are you were tuning in for one of three things. Sitcoms, a primetime soap opera, or a procedural crime show. With hits like The Cosby Show, Roseanne, Cheers, and Golden Girls, half-hour comedies ruled the airwaves. Nighttime soaps like Dallas and Knott's Landing were still on the air, but they were losing steam. And crime shows like Murder, She Wrote and Matlock catered to older audiences with actors from your parents' generation. This was still the era when the three major networks, ABC, CBS, and NBC, dominated TV. Through much of the 80s, ABC was stuck in third place, behind NBC and CBS. And in an effort to get unstuck, they underwent a bit of a creative renaissance. They embraced visionary and innovative producers. That led to shows like Roseanne, The Wonder Years, 30-something, and China Beach. So ABC was a perfect fit when an auteur director and an influential television writer began shopping around their genre-warping series. Before David Lynch and Mark Frost got together to develop this new TV show, both men already had an impressive resume. Lynch acquired cult status as a director with the release of his first feature film, Eraserhead, in 1977. Like many of his future works, it was a surreal mixture of horror and comedy. He quickly became a critical darling with films like The Elephant Man and Blue Velvet. But in between those two movies, there was also a big-budget fiasco, 
1984 version of Dune. Yes, kids, there was another version of Dune long before Zendaya and Timothy Chalamet were even born. Mark Frost, on the other hand, was a TV guy. He made a name for himself while writing for the Ultimate Cop series Hill Street Blues from 1982 to 1985. Lynch and Frost met in 1987 when they were working on a film project about Marilyn Monroe. It was never completed, but a relationship was forged that would permanently change how TV shows were made. Together, the pair set out to reimagine the genre of the nighttime soap in the way that Hill Street Blues had reimagined the cop show a decade earlier. One day while Lynch and Frost were at a Los Angeles coffee shop brainstorming ideas for this new TV show, Frost recalled stories his grandmother told him when he spent summers with her in upstate New York. She told him about Hazel Drew, the 14-year-old I mentioned off the top, who was found dead by teenagers at Teal's Pond. Frost's grandmother warned him never to go into the woods alone because the girl's ghost haunted the area waiting for her killer to be identified. You see, the investigation into Hazel Drew's murder revealed a community filled with secrets and sordid relationships, but it never uncovered who killed her. Lynch and Frost were so intrigued, they used the 80-year-old cold case as a creative launch pad for a TV pilot that would introduce viewers to the small town of Twin Peaks and the mysterious murder of Laura Palmer. For those who haven't watched the show, let me give you a brief synopsis. Life in the small Washington state logging town of Twin Peaks is shattered when the body of homecoming queen Laura Palmer washes ashore wrapped in plastic. The town sheriff teams up with visiting FBI agent Dale Cooper, played by Kyle McLaughlin. Together, they investigate the murder and uncover a variety of dark secrets about the town. On paper, it sounds pretty straightforward but nothing is as it seems in the town of Twin Peaks. For starters, before her death, Laura was leading a double life. She was addicted to cocaine, a victim of child sexual abuse, and briefly, a prostitute at One-Eyed Jack's, a casino brothel just north of the Canadian border. The show itself also has many layers. Watching it at times was like being in an ever-changing fever dream. It's a dark and haunting mystery, an over-the-top soap opera, and a quirky comedy all rolled into one. Leading up to the two-hour pilot on Sunday, April 8th, 1990, there was an avalanche of publicity about the show. Twin Peaks easily outdazzles all the new network shows. The first shows. you really can't miss this show of the night. Something of a miracle. It is like nothing else on television. A breakthrough. Be there. A, a plus. Tale of sex, violence, the first and TV junk masterpiece of the night. Like nothing on earth. Twin Peaks, Sunday. Viewers were promised the surreal drama from the mind of David Lynch would be like nothing they had ever seen before. It couldn't have been a bigger deal. It really was, you know, you, you, this was not the golden age of television. Far, far from it. That's Andy Burns, author of the Twin Peaks book, Wrapped in Plastic. He says someone like Lynch just didn't do television at the time. The fact that a, a Hollywood director was working in the TV medium was almost unheard of. It, it's the fact that this guy who had been nominated for Academy Awards was working on television. Now we, we expect it. It's, you know, we have Oscar winners starring in HBO shows. 
but back in 1990, it was unheard of. As a result of the hype, Twin Peaks was an instant phenomenon. The pilot attracted 34 million viewers. For perspective, the highest rated show during the 2021 season was a Sunday night football game on NBC that attracted 16 million viewers. Before the Twin Peaks pilot even aired, ABC ordered an additional seven episodes. Despite the fact that many of the studio executives didn't know what to make of the show, they just knew that viewers wanted to see something different. And Twin Peaks was certainly different, starting with its creepy theme music. David Lynch turned to Angela Badalamenti, a composer he had previously worked with on Blue Velvet, when it came time to create the music for his unorthodox show. What he came up with was nothing short of haunting. And the minute you hear it, you're transported into the topsy-turvy world of David Lynch. When Badalamenti was commissioned to create music for Twin Peaks, Lynch instructed him to imagine he was alone in the woods. As the composer was sitting at a keyboard, Lynch walked him through a meditation of sorts. He described the woods, the wind was blowing, an owl was hooting. Badalamenti played a few low, ominous notes. Lynch instructed him to go slower. He said, picture a distressed teenage girl emerging from the darkness. The composer played several more notes, climbing higher on the keyboard before dropping back down. Within 20 minutes, the piece known as Laura Palmer's theme was completed. Badalamenti thought maybe they should go back and work on it some more. But Lynch thought it was perfect. He said, don't change a single note. I see Twin Peaks. Laura Palmer's theme became an international hit and over the years has been homaged by a range of artists, including Anthrax, Marilyn Manson, and Moby, who helped launch his career by folding the low, slow notes of Laura Palmer's theme into his rave track, Go. And it wasn't just the music that was influential in Twin Peaks. David Lynch created a multi-layered masterpiece. As I mentioned earlier, one of the appealing things about the show was its quirkiness. There's strange characters like a possessed one-armed man, the dancing, backward-talking man from another place, the creepy entity named Bob, and who can forget the eccentric log lady who's always cradling a wooden log like it's her baby? My log has something to tell you. Do you know it? I don't believe we've been introduced. I do not introduce the log. Can you hear it? No, ma'am, I cannot. I will translate. Dale Cooper, the FBI agent on the case of Laura Palmer, is also incredibly quirky, but universally loved by fans of the show. His Eagle Scout enthusiasm doesn't stop at unraveling the murder mystery. It also extends to his appreciation of the scent of Douglas fir trees that surround Twin Peaks. And of course, pie and coffee. You know, this is, excuse me, a damn fine cup of coffee. I've had, I can't tell you how many cups of coffee in my life, and this, this is one of the best. There's also the sheriff's receptionist, Lucy, and her on-again, off-again boyfriend, Deputy Andy, who has a habit of crying at murder scenes. 
And I should mention there is a lot of crying on Twin Peaks. Over-the-top, exaggerated sobbing. Which takes me to the next layer of the show. For David Lynch and Mark Frost, Twin Peaks was a reimagining of nighttime soap operas from the 1980s. Shows like Dynasty, Dallas, Knott's Landing, and Falcon Crest. Twin Peaks included many of the tropes associated with those shows. An evil twin, a cheating husband, a family feud. And then it turned it up a notch, mocking the genre in a new and subversive way. As proof that Lynch and Frost knew exactly what they were doing, they used a concept perfected by Shakespeare, the play within a play. And they gave viewers a soap opera within the main soap opera of Twin Peaks. Most of the citizens of Twin Peaks at one time or another were seen watching a TV soap called Invitation to Love, which featured the demure character Jade and her evil twin sister, Emerald. The six minutes of Invitation to Love, which aired in season one of Twin Peaks, was filmed over a 24-hour period at the iconic Ennis House in California. You may recognize the house, which was designed by Frank Lloyd Wright in 1923, because it's also been used in tons of other movies and TV shows, including The House on Haunted Hill and Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Many of the actors on Invitation to Love improvised their scenes, and the show came off as a campy, surreal version of a soap opera, not unlike Twin Peaks. Mark Frost once explained to People magazine why they included Invitation to Love on Twin Peaks. He said, I think that watching television is a big part of people's lives in this country and you very rarely see that treated in television. At the core of Twin Peaks is a murder mystery. And for many people, that's what kept them coming back. They wanted to know who killed Laura Palmer. But by the end of the first season, there was another mystery to solve. Who shot Agent Cooper? After he was gunned down by an unknown assailant in a cliffhanger soap opera-worthy season finale. Those mysteries and many other unanswered questions drove the show to become a pop cultural phenomenon. In the spring and summer of 1990, Twin Peaks, which had moved to Thursday nights after premiering on Sunday night, had become early must-see TV. Fans held viewing parties and spent time talking about it at work and school the next day. What became known as water cooler television. Because it wasn't enough that you watched it, you had to discuss it too. A small subset of tech-savvy fans also went online to discuss their theories and questions about the mysterious show. But of course, there was no social media. There weren't even blogs yet. So these online communities flourished on a number of different bulletin board systems, including Usenet. The show was inescapable. Even if you didn't watch it, Twin Peaks, with all its weird quirks, had penetrated mainstream society. Even author Andy Burns, who was just 13 at the time, was caught up in the excitement. I bought my I Shot Agent Cooper t-shirt here in Toronto at the It store. I I went with my friend who would introduce me to Twin Peaks, and she bought an I Killed Laura Palmer shirt, and I had an I Shot Agent Cooper t-shirt. And that was, you know, Twin Peaks was everywhere in that sort of, you know, four or five month period In addition to the t-shirts, there was other merchandise for fans. You could also buy the Twin Peaks soundtrack, which made the Billboard charts and went on to win a Grammy. There was also a book written by David Lynch's 22-year-old daughter, Jennifer, 
It was called The Secret Diary of Laura Palmer. The novel is a window into 16-year-old Laura Palmer's life before the murder. Some of the typical stuff you would expect from a teenage girl transitioning to adulthood. But it also included graphic accounts of her sexual abuse, as well as her growing addiction to cocaine, which leads to her sex work at One-Eyed Jack's. It's a pretty tough read at times, filled with self-loathing as the young girl blames herself for the abuse she suffered. Jennifer Lynch has said that her dad approached her with the idea for the diary about midway through the first season. He remembered a time when his daughter once said she wished she could read someone else's diary to see if that person yearned for or feared the same things as her. It was just an offhand remark, but everything's copy when your dad is a film director. Lynch wanted to give his viewers access to Laura Palmer's inner thoughts, and he commissioned Jennifer to come up with a fictional diary written by the homecoming queen who lived a double life. Some critics found the novel exploitative and deeply disturbing, but many more found it riveting. It quickly became a New York Times bestseller in the summer of 1990. Twin Peaks was a show that really lent itself to a lot of kind of fan interaction in in that regard. You know, people were running out and getting that stuff because it just, you know, it just hit hit them in a certain way. You know, and in terms of like, sort of like an hour long drama, I don't think it had, it, it had been a really long time, I think, since any show really resonated the way that it had, you know, similarly, but not, it's not, it wasn't quite the same as maybe Dallas, but you know, that was 10 years earlier when it was, you know, who shot, uh, who shot J.R. And for the record, I had a Who Shot JR t-shirt when I was 12 years old, even though I was more likely to be watching Happy Days and Laverne and Shirley in 1980. As for Twin Peaks, Jennifer Lynch wasn't the only family member to get involved with the show. In 1990, Scott Frost, the brother of Twin Peaks co-creator Mark Frost, released Diane, the Twin Peaks tapes of Agent Cooper. In the show, Agent Cooper's always speaking into a small tape recorder, details about the town and the investigation. He's making tapes which he presumably sends to an unseen assistant named Diane, who he addresses at the beginning of each recording. Diane, I just opened Laura Palmer's diary. This is the uh, the last entry dated February 23rd. It reads, asparagus for dinner again. I hate asparagus. Well, before season two started, a collection of Agent Cooper's messages from the show, along with some never-before-heard monologues written by Scott Frost, were released on audio cassette by Simon & Schuster. The 45-minute recording earned Kyle MacLachlan a Grammy nomination for Best Spoken Word Performance and added to the excitement around the show, which had taken off with the intensity of a meteor. Andy Byrne says the show burned brightly, but not for long. When season two of Twin Peaks premiered on September 30th, 1990, up against a Perry Mason movie on NBC, and not the cool one from 2020 starring Matthew Reese, the old one featuring Raymond Burr, the hip, cool new show lost in the ratings, showing signs that its popularity might be losing some steam. Losing to Perry Mason was not only surprising, but an invitation for the network to make some changes. Andy Byrne says ABC moved the show from Thursday nights at 9 to Saturday nights at 10. ABC hoped that the audience would follow, right? But people who would watch Twin Peaks are not sitting home on a 
on a Saturday night. You 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 kill the conversation of watching it on a weekday and then talking about it the next day. Suddenly you put it on Saturday nights. I mean, even today, I mean, that was such a boneheaded move. The network also put a lot of pressure on David Lynch and Mark Frost to finally reveal Laura Palmer's killer. A 2018 article in Vanity Fair said the network suits weren't the only ones pushing the pair to solve the crime. The magazine stated there were rumors that Mikhail Gorbachev, then president of the Soviet Union, asked U.S. President George H.W. Bush to pry the secret from Frost and Lynch. But it didn't matter who was asking. At the time, neither of them was very keen on solving the crime, especially Lynch. In recent years, however, Frost admitted that he felt they had an obligation to give the audience some resolution. And that caused some tension between the two. In any case, the murder was solved for viewers in the harrowing final minutes of an episode that aired during Sweeps Week on November 10th, 1990. The mystery wrapped up for good in the following two episodes with the capture, confession, and death of the killer. They viewed the the murder of Laura Palmer as kind of the golden goose in a way. You keep coming back for it, you know, you, you the, the mystery continues, but it then it branches off into all the different characters and everything. The problem with that is the audiences wanted to know who killed Laura Palmer. And once they solved that in a, in, you know, in a way that was definitely very hard for a lot of people to take, there wasn't a clear-cut direction as to where to go next. Without giving you any spoilers, I'll just say it involved an evil spirit taking possession of someone close to the teenage girl. It was a dark twist that many viewers weren't ready for. I think the quirkiness, the coffee and the donuts and the consumption of that stuff, you know, Lucy, the sheriff's, you know, receptionist, that's the stuff that I think made the show palatable for a larger audience. I think, though, you know, as the show went on, the quirkiness, you know, became a bit of a... Uh, a bit of baggage on, on the show, you know, and, and I think audiences expected more of the offbeat stuff rather than, and, and sure, there's lots of it throughout there, but, you know, once you get into the second season and, you know, those early episodes, you're you're kind of veering into very dark waters. And I think that that, you know, people didn't necessarily respond, it didn't know how to respond to that, or they responded in the negative by not watching as much. Almost immediately, the show's viewership plummeted. The loss of the Laura Palmer investigation as the show's connective tissue meant that Twin Peaks essentially became just another primetime soap opera that was slightly weird. It lost the hook of a murder mystery to bring people back. There was also the issue that both Lynch and Frost were working on other projects in the fall of 1990. And without their creative forces at the helm... Most agree that the show lost its way. Even David Lynch has said, after Laura's killer was revealed, the show got, quote, very stupid and goofy. He says it got so bad that even he stopped watching it. And so did droves of viewers. And at the end of season two, Twin Peaks was cancelled. 10.4 million people tuned in for the final two episodes, which aired back-to-back on June 10th, 1991. That number's impressive by today's fractured viewing standards, 
But it pales in comparison to the 34 million people who watched the pilot a mere 14 months earlier. David Lynch returned to direct the finale, which sees Agent Cooper finally gaining admittance to the mysterious Black Lodge, with its zigzag floors, black couches, and gently swaying red-curtained walls. Agent Cooper is searching for his love interest, Annie, played by Heather Graham. But instead, he meets the spirit of Laura Palmer, and she has a prophetic message for him. I'll see you again in 25 years. Did I mention everyone speaks backwards in the Black Lodge? So let me translate. Palmer, played by Cheryl Lee, winks at Agent Cooper and says, I'll see you again in 25 years. Then she lifts her hands beside her face as if she's holding up an apple or something small and then freezes like one of the statues in the Black Lodge. It was a bizarre ending for an equally bizarre show. And there were still many unanswered questions. It left the diehard fans who had not given up on Lynch's vision wanting more. So when the director announced a Twin Peaks prequel movie was in the works, they were ecstatic. But when it debuted in 1992, it was not well-received. In fact, it was actually booed by audience members at the Cannes Film Festival. Twin Peaks' Fire Walk With Me looks back at the final seven days of Laura Palmer's life. The graphic R-rated film is a story about addiction and incest. But it was missing what everyone wanted. It didn't clear up a lot of the loose ends, and it left out many of the TV show's favorite characters, including the town sheriff, Harry Truman. And Agent Cooper's role was very limited. Director Quentin Tarantino has said when he saw Firewalk With Me, he was incredibly disappointed. And he said, quote, it proved Lynch had finally disappeared so far up his own ass. Mark Frost wasn't involved with the movie. Frost and Lynch butted heads during the film's development over the decision to make it a prequel. Frost thought it should continue the story for fans and not go backwards. After the disappointment of Fire Walk With Me, David Lynch didn't release another movie for five years, and his foray into the medium of television appeared to be over, but not without leaving a massive impact for years to come. New York Times TV critic Mike Hale summed it up best when he said this about Twin Peaks in 2017. Its DNA saturates the TV gene pool. Every serialized mystery, teenage melodrama, quirky dramedy, and surreal supernatural thriller owes something to it. Twin Peaks, with its flash-forwards, dream sequences, extra-dimensional spirits, and otherworldly villains, invented the idea of the TV mythology. The complicated backstory that explains the world that show's characters live in is something we take for granted in shows today. But it was completely innovative in 1990. Twin Peaks inspired hordes of imitators, everything from Northern Exposure and Picket Fences to The X-Files, The Sopranos, and Buffy the Vampire Slayer are indebted to Twin Peaks. When the show went off the air, it didn't stop obsessive fans from trying to decode it. There were dozens of websites dedicated to Twin Peaks, and there was a popular fanzine called Wrapped in Plastic, which launched in 1993. The bi-monthly magazine covered anything and everything related to Twin Peaks, as well as news about David Lynch and his other projects, as well as news about the show's closely related cousin, The X-Files. 
Before shutting down in 2005, Wrapped in Plastic released 75 issues. Physical copies of the magazine remain highly collectible and sought after show memorabilia. So remember earlier when I said that at the end of season two, Laura Palmer's spirit said, see you in 25 years. Well, that was a promise David Lynch didn't forget. He was just off by a year. In 2017, 26 years after Twin Peaks aired its last TV episode, the series returned to Showtime with 18 hours of content from the mind of Lynch and co-creator Mark Frost. But mostly Lynch. He directed every episode and insisted on full and final creative control of the series. At one point, he even publicly threatened to walk away from the entire project if he didn't get the budget he wanted. Andy Burns says the end result was worth it. It's almost no comparison, the quality between those two seasons on ABC and what Lynch and Frost accomplished with The Return. There's continuity, but in terms of sort of accomplishment, you could you could argue that Twin Peaks The Return is David Lynch's kind of magnum opus because he had carte blanche from a cable network to do whatever he wanted. Twin Peaks Return starred 27 actors from the original run of the show, including Sherilyn Fenn, Cheryl Lee, and Kyle MacLachlan as Agent Cooper and his evil doppelganger, Mr. C. And it also included a slew of well-known newcomers like Naomi Watts, Laura Dern, and Ashley Judd, as well as appearances by Michael Sarah, Eddie Vedder, and David Duchovny. Mark Frost, for his part, had free reign to answer every remaining question in his companion books, Twin Peaks The Secret History and Twin Peaks The Final Dossier. The books take the form of an FBI case report and help fill in the backstory and demystify some of the show's impenetrable mythology. The books, as well as the Showtime series, were a long-awaited gift for the original fans of the show. But they were also a way into the oddball world of Twin Peaks for a whole new generation of fans, breathing life into the phenomenon that is now over 30 years old. And just this year, Twin Peaks even got its own weird holiday. The mayor of Snoqualmie, Washington, where much of the show was filmed, declared February 24th Twin Peaks Day. If you go back to episode one, season one in 1990, that's the day Agent Cooper drove into the small town as he noted to his mysterious assistant, Diane, on his ever-present pocket tape recorder. Diane, 11.30 a.m., February 24th. Entering the town of Twin Peaks. It's five miles south of the Canadian border, 12 miles west of the state line. I've never seen so many trees in my life. In honor of the holiday, Mayor Catherine Ross invited people everywhere to celebrate by giving themselves the gift of donuts, cherry pie, and a fine cup of coffee. Thanks for joining me on this journey to the weird world of Twin Peaks. This topic was suggested by several listeners, including Brian Von Wutka. Thanks to him and everyone else for the idea. If you have a topic suggestion, you can reach me through social media. Just send me a message on Twitter or Facebook at 1990s History or on Instagram at That90sPodcast. You can also email me at 90s at CuriousCast.ca. That's 90s at CuriousCast.ca. Thanks also to my guest, Andy Burns. His book is called Wrapped in Plastic. 
He's also the editor-in-chief of a very cool website dedicated to pop culture. It's called Biff Bam Pop. I'll put all of the information about both of those in the show notes. This episode was written and hosted by me, Kathy Kinzora. Our producer is Dila Velasquez. And sound design and final production, as always, is by Rob Johnston. See you next time for more History of the 90s. 